Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. In this episode, historian Donald Ritchie recounts the life of Drew Pearson through his new book, The Columnist, Leaks, Lies, and Libel in Drew Pearson's Washington. Syndicated in more than 600 daily newspapers and through his radio and TV shows, Pearson vexed presidents from Hoover to Nixon, tangled with the FBI, and fought off numerous libel suits from public figures whose exploits he revealed. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. President Roosevelt once called you a chronic liar. President Truman called you an SOB at one time and a vicious liar at another time. The late Tennessee Senator Kenneth McKellar called you an ignorant liar, a pusillanimous liar, a peewee liar, a liar during his manhood, a liar by profession, a liar in the daytime, and a liar in the nighttime, end quote. He used up six pages of the congressional record calling me different types of liars. What is there about Drew Pearson that inspires such bitterness in presidents and other statesmen? Well, for one reason. When you hit the truth, sometimes... It hurts most. I dearly loved Roosevelt, and it hurt me deeply when he called me a chronic liar, which he did. And I uh, didn't particularly enjoy being called that by uh, Truman either, but uh, uh, Truman, uh, Truman uh, after all, he, he had a vocabulary. That is CBS's Mike Wallace in a 1957 interview with columnist Drew Pearson. Don Ritchie, he is the subject, Drew Pearson, that is, of your new biography, The Columnist. Who was Drew Pearson? Well, he was a newspaper columnist. He had a column called The Washington Merry-Go-Round that appeared in over 600 newspapers every single day, even holidays and weekends. Uh, And he did that from 1932 until he died in 1969. The column continued then under Jack Anderson. He also had a radio show uh, on Sunday nights, um, a very popular radio show on the news, and he also uh, tried to make it into television in the early 50s. Uh, He was a best-selling author for his books. Uh, He was a man who told the truth, as he said, uh, and he said, when you hit the truth, it hurts the most. He told what politicians really would prefer not to see in the newspapers. And he tried to get behind the news and to tell people what was really going on in Washington. And as a result, he ruffled a lot of feathers, especially presidents of the United States, United States senators, representatives, British prime ministers, and assorted other politicians. Why is this story interesting for people in 2021? Well, you know, right now we're in a 
position where public confidence in the news is really at an all-time low. I think one of the polls recently said that half of the population doesn't believe that uh, reporters, newspaper reporters, and other media are giving them the truth, uh, that they're exaggerating the stories or distorting the stories for political purposes. And I thought that writing about a man who was accused of being a liar by so many different people and then assessing in hindsight was was he telling the truth? Did he get the story right? Did he get it wrong? Uh, who, was, who was lying and who was telling the truth? I thought that would be a useful way of looking at the media and how important it is in our political system and how much we can rely on the information we get from the media. You are the United States Senate historian emeritus, spent much of your professional career in the United States Senate historian's office. Why does a columnist story interest you? Well, you know, the, when the Senate Historical Office was created, they thought briefly about making us a public information office, and then they said, oh, no, every senator will be their own public information officer. But the Senate's a 200-year-old institution, and it works on precedent, and so quite often reporters were calling the Senate Historical Office for information. And we, could, we couldn't talk about the politics, and we couldn't talk about the policy, but we could talk about the precedents, the history of the institution. And eventually, re reporters all around Washington and elsewhere discovered that we weren't taking sides. We weren't giving the Republican point of view or the Democratic point of view. We were just telling the story as best as we could determine what it had been. And so uh, we got so many calls that I, and I had so many personal visits from reporters, famous reporters and run-of-the-mill reporters, uh, foreign correspondents. I got curious as to how do they collect the news and how reliable is what they, uh, the news they collect. Because as an historian, of course, I'm always going back to look at historical newspapers, 19th century, early 20th century, and I just got interested in finding out uh, how reliable that information was and, and how uh, good a reflection it was of what the Congress had been at the time. So I, earlier I wrote a book about the 19th century press called uh, Press Gallery. And then uh, I wrote a book about the 20th century press called uh, w Reporting from Washington, the History of the Washington Press Corps. And interestingly enough, Drew Pearson appears in both books because one ends in 1932 and the other begins in 1932. And that's just when he was emerging as a figure on the, on the scene. So uh, he's a continuation of my interest in uh, using the press as an historical source. You have an interesting story in the acknowledgments about how this uh, this biography all came together involving a family member of Drew that, Pearson. What is it? That's right. Uh, Drew Pearson's stepson, Tyler Abel, lives on Pearson's old farm. They're called the Merry-Go-Round Farm. And uh, we had gotten to meet him, my wife and I, through uh, mutual friends. And also my wife and his wife served on the University of Kentucky's library board. And so we often went to their home and uh, heard stories about the famous people who had been there before and about Drew Pearson. And when I retired, uh, Tyler came to me and said, you know, people have forgotten who Drew Pearson was. He's really faded into history. But he has an important story that people should know about. You ought to write his biography. And I said, no, I have other things in mind. And Tyler's very persistent. He came back and he came back. And finally, one day, he invited me out to his farm and took me up into the hayloft and pulled a tarpaulin off the top of all these file cabinets and said, this is the material we have not yet sent to the LBJ library where the rest of Pearson's papers are. He said, you can look at anything you want. And we've done, we've got oral histories, we've got all this information. You know, you have carte blanche uh, to look at this and we're not going to tell you how to write a book, but uh, it's, it's up to you to make that decision. And I thought, well, you know, this is a gift. 
And I began looking into it, and the more I looked into it, the more interesting Drew Pearson was, and the more I could see a book developing. Where did the title, which he used across all of his franchise, Washington Merry-Go-Round, come from? It originally came from a book that he and his partner, Robert Allen, wrote in 1932, and they wrote it anonymously. Uh, it was originally going to be called Washington Carousel, but the editor at their, their publisher thought that Carousel was too foreign-sounding and Merry-Go-Round sounded more American. And so the book was called The Washington Mary Grant, and it was a big bestseller in 1931. It, it, uh, it, it exposed a lot of what was going on in the Hoover administration, just to the point when the economy was collapsing and people were losing faith in Hoover. And it also poked fun at political pretensions and social pretensions in Washington. And also about it poked fun at some of the press at the time that they thought were too deferential to the politicians. And uh, everybody loved this book, except for Herbert Hoover, who hated it, who got the Bureau of Investigations to find out who the anonymous authors were and tried to get them fired. The Christian Science Monitor fired Robert Allen. The Baltimore Sun didn't think it was such a bad idea to write a book poking fun at Washington. So they didn't fire uh, Pearson then. But when they persisted and wrote a sequel called More merry go the Sun said, we're not a keyhole newspaper, and they fired him at that point. And that's when Pearson and Allen thought, well, why don't we take the type of writing we're doing that's been so popular and turn it into a newspaper column. He's of the school of journalists known as muckrakers. What does that really mean and how did the term originate? Right. The term starts at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, there were a lot of mass market um, magazines that developed and they uh, hired a lot of uh, sort of colorful writers. Here in Washington you had Washington correspondents who were sort of part of the establishment. They, they developed high-placed sources, and they got accurate information, but of course they didn't want to embarrass their high-placed sources. The muckrakers, who were magazine writers, they just sort of breezed into town, found all the stories that the regular correspondents were not publishing, and published some real exposés about the government. One of the most famous was called The Treason of the Senate uh, by uh, David Graham Phillips, which actually led to the amendment to the Constitution in which senators are directly elected by the public. Uh, so they were an influential group, but the regular Washington correspondents really hated them. And they had their annual gridiron dinner, and Theodore Roosevelt spoke, and he delivered a speech uh, about the man with the muckrake, in which he totally attacked and uh, the, uh, the muckrakers as, as wanton sensationalists. And he got great cheers from the newspaper correspondents. So they urged him to go public with the speech. It was a private meeting. And there was a few days later, there was a, the unveiling of what's now known as the Cannon House Office Building. And Roosevelt gave the speech again, although he toned it down a little bit for the public consumption, in which he attacked muckrakers. And that word stuck to investigative reporters. Some saw it as a slur. Others took it as a badge of honor. I think Drew Pearson thought it was, he was proud to be called a muckraker. And he carried on the tradition. And he's really the link between the old-time muckrakers and the post-Watergate investigative reporters. You write in the book that Pearson, quote, took credit for the indictment, imprisonment, censure, and expulsion of half a dozen members of Congress and the defeat of many more. Was Congress more corrupt in, in his years? Well, Congress wasn't perhaps, well, the, they, they, they were different then. Um, they uh, certainly did not police themselves the way they do now. They did not have ethics committee. In fact, it was, it was Pearson who really prompted the House and Senate to create ethics committees. Uh, was, his exposés did lead to censures and, in some cases, uh, indictments and uh, imprisonment of, of some members uh, for kickbacks on their, their staff salaries, 
and for other uh, oh, for insider trading, for instance, and things like that. Things that are illegal and would be prohibited today. It was a lot looser in those days, and uh, and so he spent a lot of time exposing what was happening in Congress. And uh, uh, of course, he was immediately attacked as being a liar by the members of Congress. He once published a liar's scoreboard in the column as the the members who accused him of being a liar, and then what happened to them. And of course, they all wound up going to jail or losing their seats uh, in Congress. Uh, one of them was J. Parnell Thomas, who was the chairman of the House Un-American Activities Committee, who had sent many of the Hollywood Ten to jail for contempt of Congress. And because of Pearson's uh, exposés of his uh, financial dealings in his office, he wound up in the same federal penitentiary with some of the Hollywood Ten. Uh, so uh, Pearson uh, took, you know, he had a lot of skins on the wall, essentially, uh, uh, from going through Congress. Of course, he also argued that these were a tiny fraction of the members of Congress, and that uh, their actions made the rest look bad. But he was not trying to uh, disparage Congress as an institution. And he wrote about the accomplishments of members as well. He certainly promoted careers as well as destroying careers. Much of his source material came from leaks. Now, you've been observing this town for a while and writing about the media for a long time. Every administration tries to control leaks. What is it about leaks and why they happen? Well, there's a truism in Washington that for everyone who has a reason to keep something a secret, there's someone else who has a reason to open it up. And sometimes it's uh, administrations which are trying to suppress information, and it's lower-level civil servants who just think that this is a disgrace and will re will release the information. Sometimes it's the very top of the administration. It's the president's press secretary wants to float a trial balloon and sends it out. Uh, and uh, politicians in general are satisfied with leaks that they leak themselves and are really outraged at leaks that other people leak against them. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, for instance, the, the column, the Washington Marygram, was very pro-New Deal. Uh, and for the most part, Roosevelt got very good press in that column. But he hated to be anticipated. He, before he made up his mind about something, before he made an announcement, uh, he wanted to wait and, and then spring it on the press. And when he opened the newspaper and read it in uh, the Washington Merry-Go-Round, it really annoyed him. There is one instance where he gathered all of his staff in the Oval Office and said, you know, we are never going to leak again. We're just going to absolutely stop it. And none of you are allowed to leak, especially to Drew Pearson. And one of the staff members said, well, you know, we do have that story that we'd like to get out in advance so that the, we can test the public opinion and congressional opinion. And Roosevelt said, oh, well, all right, you can leak that story. And the staff member said, I already have. <laughs> you describe his philosophy as not simply that the public had a right to know, but that they needed to be excited and entertained to become better informed. So how would you describe his style? It's a very lively style. Um, in those days, there were social columns that had lots of little gossip about you know, celebrities. He wasn't writing about sex and divorce and marriage among celebrities or anything. Walter Winchell was doing that. And actually, Walter Winchell had the single most popular column in the country. Drew Pearson was second after that. Pearson wrote about politicians. He didn't write about their private lives, their sex lives or whatever. Uh, he kept that out of the column for the most part, uh, although sometimes he would leak the information to uh, Walter Winchell to put it in his column. 
But he put in all sorts of things that you wouldn't read in the regular newspaper columns. Uh, for instance, the vice president's high-stakes winnings at his poker games. Uh, you know, the, the little bits of uh, human uh, interest stories. Uh, sometimes outrageous, sometimes very funny. You never could predict from day to day what the column was going to have. Sometimes it would have a lot of different stories. Sometimes it would just have one story. Uh, editors found it was a very easy column to clip, to size, because they could drop out a paragraph or two and it wouldn't change much of the column. Unlike, say, Walter Lippmann, who was a very erudite columnist, who you really needed to read the whole column to get his point. With Pearson, it was lots of pieces. It was entertaining. It always scored very high on readers' uh, uh, polls of newspapers when they wanted to see what's the most popular part of my newspaper which was a problem for editors and publishers because sometimes they hated the column because it attacked their own particular politics or the politicians they really liked. But if they tried to cut it out, they got so many complaints from their readers, they wound up putting it back in, sometimes with a little disclaimer saying, the views of this column do not reflect the views of the editors of this paper. Readers of the columnist, your book, will see that you've included throughout the book snippets of his column. Why did you decide to do that? That's right. Well, uh, I realized, again, that most people haven't read the Washington Merry-Go-Round, at least what, the way it was when Pearson was the uh, author of it. And you need to get a little bit of the flavor of what was it about the column that made it so interesting. Some of these are hard news stories. Some of them are kind of funny little stories. Uh, you know, President Roosevelt goes to Warm Springs and forgets to cancel his order of breakfast pastries, which start piling up in the White House. That really annoyed Franklin Roosevelt, especially because uh, Pearson said that it was Danishes, and Roosevelt really didn't like Danishes, but he did like breakfast rolls. So uh, that, there are funny little pieces like that. And other cases where he um, predicted things. He, he was very famous at, su at suggesting what was about to happen. And certainly uh, one of the things he wrote in the 30s, he was always attacking the Navy for being sort of old-fashioned. And he said the Navy was totally unprepared for modern aircraft uh, 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 warfare. And of course, right after Pearl Harbor, his editors pointed out, or his publishers said, you know, he was absolutely right about his, his predictions on that. So it was an exciting column. It was a funny column. The Washington Post put it on the comics page, not necessarily because they thought it was a funny piece, but because it irritated them a lot when it was on the editorial page, and they sort of thought they would hide it in the comics page. But Pearson said, you know, a lot more people read the comics than read the editorials. So he was quite happy with being there. At least he said he was happy with being there. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Pearson was a Quaker. Yep. How did that affect his worldview? 
You know, that's one thing I learned as I was going through the book and discovering him. I, I knew him vaguely. I had, I had read his column for about two years when I came to graduate school and uh, the University of Maryland in, in the 1960s, but I didn't know a lot about him. And I, and I, you know, religion is an important factor in people's lives, but you never know how important it is. And certainly it, it, it comes up enough uh, that I realized that it did shape his worldview. And so as a result, uh, he, for instance, on civil rights, he was not initially uh, in favor of civil rights. He didn't, it wasn't a big issue. A lot of his newspapers were Southern newspapers. And like a lot of other whites who lived in the South, they sort of looked the other way. But he became offended by what he saw after a while. He became offended by the Ku Klux Klan, and he became offended by segregation, and he became even offended by the National Press Club not allowing black members. And so he, it became a crusade with him of equality and justice. Uh, in his family, he used the thee and the thy and the, the it's the old Quaker style speaking. Uh, and uh, they, they did silent prayers at, uh, at meals and things like that, just enough to indicate that it was on his mind. And he judged uh, politicians by the standards that the Quakers had and he had. Although, interestingly, the two presidents that he got along the worst with were the two Quaker presidents, Herbert Hoover and Richard Nixon. Their form of Quakerism was not Drew Pearson's form, and that it didn't help them in the long run that they had been Quakers. You spoke about the volume. The column appeared every single day and then later added was radio and television. Um, actually, I wanted to show a clip that we had of his television program. But after we look at it, the question is, how did, how did he do all of this? It's a lot of work. So yeah. let's watch and we'll come back. Congress back in town, the news is certainly breaking. Eisenhower has finally decided that he has to get his program through con Congress at any cost, and here are the developments. He has finally picked a successor to Senator Taft. And the man he has picked is none other than the Vice President, Mr. Nixon, who a year ago, his name was Mutt. But today, he's the white-haired boy around the White House. Now, this naturally is going to cause some trouble with the Senate Majority Leader, Mr. Noland of California. Because both of these men are young, both are ambitious, and both aspire to be president of the United States. 365 columns a year. Yes. How many radio shows a year? Uh, every Sunday night. And what about television? Uh, he did television a little more spor uh, sporadically. Uh, that was King late in his career, and he didn't quite make the transfer. A lot of radio reporters who were famous radio correspondents just couldn't move over to what they called this new form of radio. Uh, and uh, But he was doing a lot, and he was also giving lectures. He was traveling around the country constantly giving public lectures. Uh, the cover of the book is Pearson working late at night, uh, typing out his column, and that's what he did. He worked at all hours of the day and night. Uh, he learned to sleep on trains and planes and then wake up and start working on his column. He would... Uh, he would write the weekend columns during the week, and those were sort of out of the way. So he wasn't necessarily writing on those days, but his family said that pretty much every day he was doing some kind of work, uh, and uh, uh, it was a grind. But he, had, he also had something called legmen. These were uh, younger reporters that he hired at very low salaries to go out and to walk around the halls of Congress and go through the State Department and the Pentagon and pick up whatever the rumors were, whatever the news was, uh, and then if he did come up with a story, he would send them out to prove 
the information. And he'd say, you know, get, come up with the facts to back that one up. So he had help on it. He was, in some cases, the managing editor of the, the column. But he wrote a lot of the column. And some of the uh, columns were personal letters that he would write to his daughter or his stepson or other fa- family members and other uh, people that he knew, uh, sort of explaining what he thought about the Korean War or whatever the other issue was that was coming up at the time. But he was uh, it was a constant drain. And he had very few hobbies other than his farm. He loved to farm, but uh, he, as his, his stepson said, uh, he wrote more than he read. He didn't play golf. Uh, uh, he had good friends that he liked to dine with, and his, his uh, evenings were spent with uh, Washington politicos, and those, of course, what they told him at the dinner table would wind up in the column the next day or two. One of his most famous leg men was a gentleman by the name of Jack Anderson. Who was he? Well, when Pearson hired him in 1947, he was a young Army uh, uh, reporter for Stars and Stripes and getting out of the Army, looking for a job. He wanted to come to Washington. And one of the old-time reporters, he was in China at the time, one of the old-time reporters said, if you're going to Washington, you want to work for Drew Pearson because he knows where all the bodies are buried. And so about a, they had 100 applicants for the job, and uh, Jack Anderson got the job. He said, well, it was either because he was so young and he was malleable that, that Pearson could shape him in his own image the way he wanted a reporter to be, or he was willing to work for the least amount of money. He had a terribly low salary. And almost all of Pearson's uh, staff uh, complained about the salaries that they got. And almost all of them had second jobs. So Jack Anderson also worked for Parade Magazine, for instance, writing their Washington uh, pieces uh, to to get uh, get more uh, income coming in. Part of this was even though Pearson made a lot of money from the column, and especially from the radio shows, he was sued for libel so often that he had enormous um, uh, attorney's fees. And so uh, he, uh, he basically was shunting the money over to his court cases and not to the, uh, to the staff. But his staff was very loyal to him because they, they knew he believed in what he was doing and they were willing to work at the low salaries that he paid. Jack Anderson ultimately succeeded Drew Pearson in his column. What was it about their relationship that he became a successor? Jack Anderson turned out to be a very good reporter, a very determined reporter uh, who really pressed, and he often pressed Pearson in areas where Pearson sort of stepped back and thought, well, maybe we're going too far. Uh, A classic case is about Thomas Dodd, who was senator from Connecticut, Jack Anderson found out from Dodd's former staff that Dodd was taking campaign contributions and using them for personal finances. And so uh, he collected an enormous amount of information. His staff, Dodd's staff actually went in on the weekends and took things out of the files, gave them to uh, Anderson, and then returned them to the files. And uh, Anderson published about 20 columns on this. And eventually the editors were saying, you know, this is over the top. Uh, We could be uh, in, in case of this could be a libel case for us, um, and, you know, people are going to get bored because you're doing the story so often. And Pearson pulled the plug. He said, "That's enough." And Anderson showed up with the young staff members at Pearson's home, and they presented him with the case. And Pearson nodded, and nodded, and he finally said, "Okay, let's go ahead with it." And they eventually published a hundred articles, and uh, Senator Dodd was censured by the Senate and defeated for re-election. So it was a very effective uh, uh, campaign. The Pulitzer Committee unanimously voted to give the Pulitzer Prize to Pearson and, and uh, Anderson for those series. But the people who ran the Pulitzer Prize said, no, no, they're, 
they're, they're not the kind of people we want to award, and they withdrew the award. Uh, Jack Anderson later himself, on, a, on his own, won the Pulitzer Prize. But uh, Drew Pearson was a little too controversial during his career. You write at the end that it was one of his great regrets in life that he never won that prize. That's right. He didn't quite get the recognition that he thought that he deserved for the type of work that he'd been doing. Uh, and uh, the, the two things that he would have liked to have been, one was he would have loved to have been Secretary of State. He, was, he started out as a diplomatic correspondent, and he was always interested in diplomacy. He wrote a lot about foreign policy in the column over the years. Uh, and Lyndon Johnson sort of hinted that that might be a possibility, just enough to keep Pearson very sympathetic to the Johnson administration. But uh, that didn't happen, and the Pulitzer Prize didn't happen. He regularly violated, and reading through your book, what would seem to be journal appropriate journalistic practices, at least today, lobbying for the causes that he was interested. He would testify on, on before congressional committees. He wrote speeches for politicians. Mm -hmm. How did he square that active involvement right. in politics with his role as a journalist? Well, you know, he was a columnist as opposed to a reporter. And columnists sort of have a, a, a little bit more freedom of action. They can take sides. They can have a political point of view. Uh, they can argue in favor of a particular bill or whatever. They, they're allowed to have opinion when regular newspaper reporters are supposed to be objective. And especially in Pearson's age, the, the objectivity was much firmer than it is today. Today, you'll see newspaper articles in which uh, a reporter will actually call a politician a liar because they can prove that what he had said isn't true. Uh, in the, back in the, in the Joe McCarthy days, for instance, most reporters would just say, Senator McCarthy made a controversial claim or made an made a, a out, outspoken claim. They wouldn't claim that the claim was, was true or false. But Pearson could do that. And he carried that on to uh, supporting bills, legislation that he was in favor of. Uh, he promoted uh, careers. He wrote speeches for members of Congress. Uh, he did testify before their committees. He was quite open about a lot of that. Uh, he also wrote speeches for presidential candidates. Uh, he got involved in a lot of things. Uh, but he felt that as a, as a columnist, that was uh, part of his uh, responsibility and uh, that he had, per essentially, permission to do that. He was married twice. And, and as you describe it, both of those marriages helped to advance his career. How so? Well, as a very young man, he met uh, the, the daughter of the wealthiest woman in Washington, Sissy Patterson, who became the editor of one of the most popular newspapers, the Washington Times-Herald. And so being married to her daughter opened the doors to high society. Uh, it gave him a lot of entree uh, around Washington, D.C., and it helped when he was getting started as a columnist. That marriage only lasted two years. They did have a daughter. Uh, but she was a sort of free spirit and wanted, didn't want to be confined in a marriage. A uh, little later, uh, Pearson married uh, Louvi uh, Moore uh, Abel, who was the wife, uh, the ex-wife of his best friend in Washington, which ruined that friendship along the way, George Abel. Uh, and uh, 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 Louvi was, uh, she shared his interest in politics, but she was, she had the velvet touch and where Pearson could ruffle a lot of feathers, uh, Luby could smooth them out. And if the Washington Post was irritated with some of the columns and embarrassed sometimes by some of the columns, uh, Luby was playing bridge with Catherine Graham and with her, with uh, the, uh, her father, the Eugene Mayer and others. So uh, she helped his career considerably. The, that, the only thing they largely disagreed on was during the Vietnam War. Um, Drew Pearson uh, 
supported Lyndon Johnson. He was uncomfortable about the war, but he supported the war. Uh, his daughter-in-law, Bess Abel, was the White House Social Secretary during the Johnson administration. His stepson, Tyler Abel, worked in the administration, became chief of protocol eventually. Uh, but his wife, Luthie, was going out and picketing the White House with the anti-war groups, because she became passionately anti-war. Uh, and again, in the end, uh, he came to the conclusion she was right. And in March of 1968, he wrote to Lyndon Johnson before Johnson withdrew and said, I regret to say that I'm going to have to stop supporting you on the war. I think it's unwinnable and we need to withdraw from Vietnam. Uh, One character that appears throughout the, the decades of his work is J. Edgar Hoover, <laughs> a longtime director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. You say that there are thousands of pages uh, of documents collected about Drew Pearson by the FBI. What was his, he was also using them as sources for his mm -hmm. work. What was his relationship like with the uh, FBI? The opening of a thousand pages of FBI records was a big asset for me in writing this book. Uh, first off, <laughs> just among other things, they, they, every Sunday night they made some poor agent listen to the radio show to report to J. Edgar Hoover on Monday morning if uh, Pearson said anything uh, negative about the FBI and have a rebuttal ready to go. He was so, that important to them. Oh, exactly. And they, so as a result, I had nice summaries of what Pearson was saying on the radio, uh, uh, which is just a, a wonderful uh, opportunity to find out about that kind of information. But uh, what I saw was that in 1935, when the Federal Bureau of Investigation was really being formed, uh, the Justice Department was worried that the public was more enamored with uh, king, uh, with gangsters like uh, John Dillinger and uh, and others, and uh, not with the with the government agents. And so they called in Drew Pearson and his partner Robert Allen, the Attorney General, and said, "What can we do?" And they said, "Well, you have to build up the FBI, not in terms of agents, but in terms of its public relations." And the column began to promote Jay Hoover's career, called him a super G-man. Of course, he liked that, and he reciprocated by providing information from the FBI. And if they came across a claim that they couldn't substantiate, they would show it to FBI agents who would tell them what their files said on this issue. And in some cases, if they exposed something, the FBI would then go on to investigate it. That's how many of those members of Congress wound up going to jail, is that the FBI followed up on the columns that, uh, uh, that Pearson had published. But uh, in the 50s, when Joe McCarthy started the Red Scare, Drew Pearson became fiercely opposed to uh, Joe McCarthy. Joe McCarthy had been a great source for the column previously, but once he started on his anti-communist crusade, uh, Pearson started writing very negative columns. Jack Anderson said, but he's a great source. And Pearson said, he may be a good source, but he's a bad man. And uh, Pearson went anti-McCarthy. J. Edgar Hoover embraced McCarthy. And Hoover became uh, outraged at what Pearson was writing. And I could tell because Pe uh, Hoover would write really nasty comments about Pearson in the margins of any memos about uh, Pearson that were coming up and, and really was out, uh, offended by what he was saying. But even later, as late as 1968, when the FBI had information that they thought was in the interest of the public to know about, they leaked it to the Washington Merry-Go-Round. They knew it was valuable, even though it offended them. I want to come back to the McCarthy story in, in a, a few minutes, but uh, you do work your way through the administrations, uh, and I want to do a, a little bit more on Franklin Roosevelt. You talked about the relationship um, 
and, and between the columnist and the White House then, I wanted to have you speak specifically about the challenge of reporting during wartime mm, and the yes. creation of the censorship office and how it impacted Drew Pearson's work. Right. Uh, the column started just as the New Deal was starting. And so the New Deal was a huge source of information, and the public was fascinated with it. So it really put the column on the map in the 30s. But then in 1941, the United States goes to war, and so all of a sudden the question is, can you be as honest and open about reporting about the government in wartime as you were in peacetime? Uh, and Pearson thought, yes, that the public has a right to know that we're still voting in elections, that uh, we, we don't want government hiding things that, that uh, the public really ought to be aware of. Uh, for instance, like the, what was the, uh, uh, the nature of the destruction at Pearl Harbor? It was a column that he was writing. He didn't get everything right, but he did think that, uh, that they needed to know what, what was actually happening. And the government was uh, troubled by this. Uh, they, uh, they did create an office of censorship. They looked over, especially his radio programs, they read the scripts, and he sometimes had to change the wording in the script to get, the, get around it. He read the censorship codes so well that he could quote it back to the censors better than they could. Uh, and so he was very uh, adept at, at getting things out. Uh, and he could switch back and forth the things he could get in the column. If he couldn't get in the column, he would get it on the radio and one way or the other. For instance, he's the reporter who broke the story that General Patton slapped two shell-shocked soldiers in a, in a military hospital, uh, thinking that they were slackers. And uh, every reporter in, in Europe knew the story, but none of them dared to publish it. Pearson found out about it, and he couldn't get it into his newspaper column, but he got it on the radio. And then once he broke the story, then all of the war correspondents in Europe verified and confirmed the, the story, uh, and, and Pearson got through that as well. But, but he was always being threatened with, uh, with pr prison or with being sued. Or, you know, if he'd been in England and he published some of the things that he wrote about Winston Churchill, the Official Secrets Act would have sent him to jail. But the First Amendment protected him here in Washington. And so uh, he uh, felt that it was his responsibility. He hated all these documents marked secret. He said 90% of them aren't to protect the country, but they're to protect the reputation of who the politician or the civil servant was who created the problem that was, was developing. Uh, and, uh, and he felt that it was his right to decide whether something was truly secret or not. He didn't publish everything he knew. He learned early about the atomic bomb and certainly did not uh, reveal that although he did tell his radio listeners that the war would end just as abruptly as it began, uh, which was his hint to uh, what was about to happen. But there were things that he, he for national security reasons, that he suppressed. The, uh, the FBI investigated him during the war. They tapped his telephones. He said so many people were listening in on his phone calls that he could sell commercials. And uh, the British planted a spy in his, uh, uh, his household to find out where he was getting this information that was so critical of Churchill. And the spy they picked was a British Royal Air Force uh, officer who was stationed in Washington at the British Embassy by the name of Roald Dahl, who we all the, know the author. Yeah. Yes, exactly, children's books, Charlie mm -hmm. and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, he was a very suave man. He was very popular in Washington. And he became best friends with Pearson during the war. Pearson figured out that he, was, he had an ulterior motive. And they began to trade back and forth. Uh, if Dahl would leak information to him, he would leak information back and help the, the, the British in return. He never divulged who his sources were, 
uh, but, uh, but he and Dahl had a, an interesting relationship that indicates how much other governments were con uh, concerned about what went into that column. You know, the, the British noticed that we didn't have a national newspaper here because even the New York Times, they said, only went to a widish radius around New York, but that the newspaper columns appeared in every newspaper, big newspapers, little weeklies out in the, in the rural areas, uh, and that, that was the, what was really affecting public opinion. So the British agents in uh, the United States during World War II worked very hard to convince Walter Winchell and Drew Pearson to come on their side. And uh, Winchell did. He was essentially a propagandist for them. Pearson uh, put his own uh, interpretation on the information they gave him, but he did use the things they leaked to him. Harry Truman, in the opening clip, Pearson made, Drew Pearson made reference to Harry Truman's uh, famous animosity towards reporters. Uh, how would you describe the relationship between the two? Uh, Truman hated a gossip columnist, and he called Pearson a gossip columnist. And he hated him especially because uh, Pearson dared to criticize Bess Truman and Margaret Truman. And, and uh, Truman said, in Missouri, we put our women on a pedestal, and he wanted to keep them there. And he hated uh, what Pearson was writing. Uh, just, just got under his skin constantly. Uh, and, and he really shut him out of the administration. The, the only time Pearson got into the Oval Office while Truman was president was at the very beginning of Truman's presidency, and he, and he got a tongue lashing. Uh, Truman had an aide named Harry Vaughan, who was sort of the court jester of his administration, who was really getting into a lot of trouble, and the, the column was exposing what he was doing, the influence peddling he was doing. And so uh, basically the column said Truman needs to fire uh, Harry Vaughan. And... Uh, President Truman spoke at a reserve officers meeting that was celebrating General Vaughan, and he said, no SOB is going to tell me who to fire in my administration. The f official photographer uh, changed no SOB to no person is going to tell me, but other reporters who were there picked it up. And of course it became a big issue. Uh, Pearson pointed out it was Brotherhood Week, and so the President Truman obviously was referring to Sons of Brotherhood. Uh, but when Pearson wrote his own quasi-memoir, a series of articles in the 1950s that appeared in the Saturday Evening Post, the title was Confessions of an SOB. We have a clip from 1953 of Harry Truman appearing on the Washington Merry-Go-Round <clears throat> program. Let's watch. Mr. President, a lot of people have been criticizing me because I've sometimes been critical of McCarthy. They say that McCarthy, despite his methods, is necessary to this country in order to focus attention on communism and put communists in jail. What's your opinion of that? Well, I don't think the methods of McCarthy are ever necessary in a republic such as ours. The Bill of Rights is the basis of the freedom of the individual. And his uh, idea of an approach is by suspicion and not by the facts. The facts in the case are that the communists who were working for the subversion of the government of the United States were indicted long before McCarthy ever heard of a communist. And they were indicted during the administration of President Roosevelt and myself. You uh, told us the outcome of the story, which the, was that Drew Pearson's was one of the contributors to McCarthy's ultimate censure by the United States Senate. 
I didn't want to leave this yeah. era without you telling the story of the Soulgrave Club. Oh, uh, yes. Well, I was going to say that, by the way, that was the first interview that uh, Truman did after he left the presidency, to go on that show. And McCarthy brought back people who had been fighting with each other for years. He, they sort of united. So Pearson and Truman, who had been on the outs when Truman was president, actually became friends when Truman was fo a former president. Same thing with Senator Millard Tidings, who was, had been one of McCarthy's great opponents in the 1930s, uh, wound up fighting with McCarthy and, and Tidings and, and Pearson buried the hatchet at that stage. Uh, Pearson's columns uh, irritated Senator McCarthy greatly, and McCarthy from time to time basically threatened that he was going to beat up uh, Drew Pearson. Uh, McCarthy had been a, a, a fighter before, and, uh, he was a, he was a, a prize fighter, uh, and he basically said he was going to punch him out or he was going to beat him up or break his ribs. He made all sorts of threats about him. And uh, they, in 1950, uh, it was in December of 1950, the, uh, uh, there was a socialite in Washington who was famous for ha having parties in which she brought enemies together and didn't tell them they were going to be at the same party. And she wound up seating Drew Pearson and Joe McCarthy at the same table. Both of them were outraged <laughs> that they were there, but they, you know, McC Pearson was there with his wife and he was trying to be polite. Uh, but McCarthy, who was drinking heavily, uh, harassed him throughout the evening. Finally, Pearson got up and came around and leaned over and whispered into McCarthy's ears that he was studying his income tax problems in Wisconsin. And he said, when are they going to put you in jail? And McCarthy jumped out of the chair and you know, basically said, we need to go outside and settle this. But uh, everybody separated the two, and Pearson and his wife went out to dance. At midnight, they were down in the cloakroom, the men's cloakroom of the, the Sulgrave Club. Uh, Pearson was getting his coat. He was reaching into his pocket for some change to tip the cloakroom attendant. McCarthy accused him of going for a gun, pinned his arms, kneed him in the groin, and slapped him in the face. And who should appear just at this moment but the newly elected senator from California, Richard Nixon, who stepped in between the two of them and separated them. And even as he separated them, McCarthy reached over and slapped Pearson across the face very hard. And uh, Pearson grabbed his coat and left. Uh, McCarthy said to Nixon, you know, you shouldn't have stopped me, Dick. And Nixon, for years, used to tell that story and say, do you think it did me any good with Drew Pearson? Never. Uh, he we got very bad press from Drew Pearson over the years. But uh, uh, Nixon, who was a Quaker, felt that a Quaker should break up a fight and stepped in at, the, at that moment. The Eisenhower administration was, as you depicted, a tight ship with not many leaks and not much drama. Uh, the one story I wanted to have you talk about, we have about 15 minutes left, by the way, was the U-2 incident and oh, Gary Powers. You said... That started the press-government relations down the slope toward the credibility gap. Right. Yes, uh, President Eisenhower, uh, as a former military man, he was used to controlling the press as a military officer, and he thought that he could control the press as president. He had a very effective press secretary, Jim Haggerty, uh, who provided the press with the information that they were seeking, but made sure they didn't see the information that the administration want, did, wanted to protect. And uh, they wanted a leak-free administration. Eisenhower did a lot of his foreign policy sub rosa. He did it through the CIA. He, we know there were uh, instances in, in uh, Iran, in Guatemala, uh, in Vietnam that uh, we didn't know about at the time, but actually affected our foreign policy for generations. Is still feeling the effects of them in Iran, for instance. Uh, that, but at the time, uh, everything was 
hush-hush. And Eisenhower was very happy with that situation. And one of the uh, issues that came up in the late 50s was, is the United States falling behind Russia in producing missiles? And so this image of a missile gap developed. Actually, some federal agencies were promoting that image because Eisenhower was cutting the military budget. And they thought that th by scaring the public about a missile gap, the military budget would be increased. Uh, Eisenhower knew there was no missile gap because the U-2 flights over Russia were showing that the Russians were not that well developed. The United States was well ahead of Russia. But he couldn't say that, and he didn't want to say that. And he also didn't want to say these U-2 flights were spy flights. So the government was saying that these were weather flights. Uh, and when the U-2 was shot down, we th thought it just crashed. We didn't know it was shot down. Uh, Jack Anderson uh, went to the Pentagon for, in behalf of, of Drew Pearson and f asked his regular sources, and they all confirmed that it was a weather flight, uh, weather forecasting flight, and it strayed off course and crashed. And so the column printed that. And then a couple of days later, the Russians said, oh, we have the, the, sh the plane, we shot it down, and we have the pilot, he's still alive. And because then the United States had to admit that the story they produced was a cover story. And Pearson was outraged, and he wrote a column about saying to his readers, look, the story we gave you before we thought was true, but that was what we got from, from our sources of the government. But it wasn't. And in fact, uh, this is what we're putting up with now, is that the government's not telling us the, the, the truth or the whole truth. It turned out that some of the most prominent reporters, uh, especially at the New York Times, knew all about the U-2. They'd known it for a year, but they thought it was their patriotic duty and for national security not to reveal that information. So the idea that reporters would sit on information, that was offensive to Drew Pearson, and it was one thing that sort of uh, drove him uh, to, to reveal things. I mentioned the slippery slope to the credibility gap, is that up to that point, most Americans never believed that their government would lie to them. Uh, and certainly a lot of reporters thought that the government was giving them a straight story. But people began to question things, and it, it increased during the Kennedy administration when there was questions about news management, and especially increased during the Johnson administration when clearly the, the, uh, the Pentagon Papers revealed that the stories that people like Robert McNamara were saying in public conflicted with what he was reporting on in private. And in fact, the situation in Vietnam was much more dire than the administration was leading on. So the, Johnson really lost credibility steadily during his presidency. But I thought that started really in 1960 when it made the public and it made reporters much more skeptical of information the government was providing. What did Drew Pearson and his column think of the Kennedy administration? Well, Pearson got off on the wrong foot with the Kennedy administration by going on the Mike Wallace show. We, we started with Mike Wallace. And, uh, Mike Wallace asked him about what he thought about John Kennedy, and Pearson blurted out, well, he's the only person who won a Pulitzer Prize for a book that was ghostwritten. Uh, and there were rumors around Washington that Theodore Sorensen had really written uh, Profiles in Courage. Uh, uh, and Pierce, uh, Kennedy was very sensitive about that because it was a project that had been developed when Kennedy was recuperating from a back surgery. And so he had a lot of people contributing to it. He spent a lot of time listening to them and making notes. And, but he was like more like the managing editor of the book than the author of the book. And Sorensen did a lot of the work. But it was, certainly wasn't a ghostwritten book. But that, that charge always hung over Kennedy, and he was sensitive to it 
all during his presidency. And he kept Pearson at a distance. And also because Pearson was very critical of Kennedy's father, who had been, he thought, pro-German uh, at the beginning of World War II, uh, and when he was ambassador to England. And he continued to write critical columns about Papa Joe, as he called him. And uh, he was critical of his brother Robert because uh, Robert Kennedy had worked for Joe McCarthy uh, in the early 1950s. And so the Kennedy family uh, sort of kept uh, Pearson at a distance. The other problem was that Drew Pearson was a generation older than John Kennedy. All of the presidents he'd covered up to that point were his age or older than him. And now you have this president who's 20 years younger. Ironically, in many ways, Pearson was the generation of Nikita Khrushchev, and he got along better in some respects with Nikita Khrushchev than he got along with, with uh, John Kennedy. And I, I call that chapter be between Kennedy and Khrushchev. And he's one of the few American correspondents who is invited to do interviews with Khrushchev. And he, one of the things he's concerned about is, does Khrushchev want war or does he want peace? And he comes away convinced that, uh, that Khrushchev wants to avoid war at, at all costs. And that's the message he takes back to Kennedy, and it plays a part in Kennedy's thinking uh, in, during the, the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. In the LBJ administration, the, the big civil rights legislation was passed. You mentioned earlier that Drew Pearson became a real advocate for civil rights in the United States. How did he view Lyndon Johnson's work on that bill? Well, even before that bill, uh, when Johnson was vice president, he was writing columns saying, you know, Johnson is actually speaking out on civil rights. He was chairing this commission on the civil rights at the time and looking into uh, hiring, uh, equal opportunity hiring in defense industries and other things like that. And then Johnson was actually talking about the issue, whereas Kennedy wasn't. As president, Kennedy was trying to downplay the civil rights issue. He didn't want the South to explode. In 1963, Kennedy gave three speeches in the South in which he did not mention civil rights at all. And so uh, John, uh, Pearson thought that Johnson w would probably come up with a more forthright program on civil rights, and he was right. And uh, Johnson's pushing of the Civil Rights Bill of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65, they, those passed because of Lyndon Johnson and, uh, and the drive that he had behind it. He was sort of the supermajority leader behind those, uh, those uh, pieces of legislation. And, and Pearson gave him credit for that. And, and because Johnson wanted that kind of credit, and he cultivated uh, Pearson, he'd, he'd certainly been criticized a lot when he was a senator in the column. But he was very determined that the column was going to be on his side while he was president. Richard Nixon was the final president that he covered. In 1969, Richard Nixon was president. Let's watch Drew Pearson on the uh, Dick Cavett show hmm. talking about his reputation in Washington. Are, you, uh, are people fearful of you in Washington? Well, I don't. They shouldn't be. I don't know. Some of them are, I guess. When you enter a room, do you see people go, there's Pearson, and they straighten up and <laughs> put things away? Usually it's the other way around. I look around to see whether Tom Dodd is in the room or somebody like that, mm -hmm. whether I should get ready to um, give, give him the cold freeze, as he was sure to give it to me. Yeah. And uh, no, I don't think people are fearful of me anymore. Some are. Where was his career in 1969? It was at the very end. He died in September of 1969. Uh, you have Richard Nixon, who he had been opposed to from the day Nixon was elected to Congress, and they'd had a terrible relationship, and now Nixon is elected president. Uh, and Pearson actually gives Nixon a honeymoon. For the first six months of the 
administration. He really backpedals and doesn't go on the attack uh, in the column. But but uh, Nixon was primed for being attacked in that column. And in fact, before he even became president, he told his chief of staff, no one in this administration is allowed to talk to Drew Pearson. And we're going to read the column every day to see that that's true, that nobody does talk to Drew Pearson. So it really, uh, Drew Pearson was the very first person on the, uh, on the Nixon enemy list, essentially. And then uh, Pearson died before Watergate. And Jack Anderson took over, and Jack Anderson begins to really expose things that are going on in the uh, administration. And as Watergate is breaking, Anderson writes a column and saying, by gosh, Drew Pearson was right. Uh, he, he nailed what Pearson was all about and how untrustworthy he really was. I, I can feel his spirit hovering over my typewriter as I'm writing this column. Uh, Pearson didn't get to, to live long enough to see that, and he also didn't get to live long enough to see how seriously the public would take investigative reporting and how different it would become after his death. But he, as I say, he was the link between the muckrakers and the post-Watergate investigative reporters. Uh, but he just died at the cusp of uh, the, before that all began. Sort of like Moses couldn't get to the promised land. When he died, he had services in Washington's National Cathedral, and 1,000 people attended. All these people were calling him liars. Uh, people took, went to blows with him over stories. How do we square the two, 1,000 people at the funeral? Well, it sort of reminds me of when his mother-in-law, <laughs> Sissy Patterson, died, and she'd been viciously uh, opposed to Drew Pearson. When Pearson showed up at uh, her funeral, one of the newspaper reporters there turned to his wife and said, now I know she's dead. Uh, <laughs> she wouldn't have tolerated this. And, uh, you know, but uh, there's a point. He, uh, people knew him. People liked him as well. You know, he, he was uh, very popular with the people that he wrote, that he agreed with, and that he wrote uh, positively about. Uh, we think only about the people that he attacked, but the fact of the matter is, uh, he was promoting causes that a lot of those people uh, w were trying to get through, and they they valued the publicity that came out of the column. They liked him as a person in a lot of ways, as he suggested that uh, uh, that he didn't have a lot of enemies. He had a lot of people who stayed friendly with him because that was a good way to keep to get a good press in his column or so. But there were also a lot of people who really thought that he was doing a noble job as a as a columnist, and uh, and he was a very influential man for a very long time, and he probably helped a lot of the careers of the people who were in the audience that day. We have about four minutes left. I want to put Jack Anderson talking about investigative journalism on the screen next. This is a C-SPAN interview. <clears throat> just to follow up on your comments about the cusp of investigative journalism in that era just beginning to blossom when he died. Let's watch. I remember when investigative reporters were pariahs. I think we're going back to that again. I think the reason is that, uh, well, first, the government doesn't like to be investigated. Uh, the publishers and, and uh, TV station owners are close to the people who are in power. Uh, they belong to the same social circles. They attend the same soirees. And uh, they're embarrassed by investigative reports. It, uh, uh, they, they have to explain to their friends. Uh, editors and program directors, I think, may like it, but it causes them problems. Uh, they're, asked, uh, they, they, they're asked embarrassing questions. They get uh, uh, notes from the publisher. The, a, a lawyer may threaten to sue. It, it's much easier just to cover the press releases and the press conferences. So I want to use that as a closing comment on the state of journalism today. 
Is investigative journalism alive and well? Are there any people doing the kind of work that Drew Pearson and later Jack Anderson did? Uh, well, it's alive. I'm not sure it's well. Uh, you know, Seymour Hirsch commented that uh, eventually editors get tired of difficult reporters and difficult stories, and they'll often pull the plug on something that they don't want to spend more money on or more time on, or they, they think it's going to embarrass the, the uh, media that they're dealing with. Uh, they couldn't do that with Pearson because he had 600 editors and publishers. And they could drop it. Certainly people got offended by his column and they dropped the column from time to time. But, uh, but there were other newspapers that would pick up the slack. And so he had more freedom than a lot of investigative reporters who work for individual newspapers or uh, other media. There are now there's sort of groups of investigative reporters who've come together, working on the state level, working on the national level, uh, so to get around some of those obstacles that are happening. Uh, but yes, we still have investigative reporting, and it's, it's still things appear in the newspaper that the political leaders would prefer not to see in print. I, I, there have been times when I've gone out and picked up my copy of the Washington Post on the front steps and looked at the headline and thought, what were they thinking? That you know, the people thought they could get away with something like this in a town where everybody is watching what's going on and where there's so much happening, and yet. You know, politicians quite often think that they can go around, they can they can withhold information, they can present a, a rosy view of what's happening, uh, and uh, eventually somebody goes out and cracks the story. Uh, uh, that Pearson spent years doing that. Uh, Pearson's staff said, you know, we think about uh, uh, Daniel Ellsberg in the Pentagon Papers, but uh, Drew Pearson was doing that every day for 40 years, essentially, not just a one-time instance. He was constantly digging up information, offending presidents who he liked, like Franklin Roosevelt, offending presidents he didn't like, like Herbert Hoover and Richard Nixon. Uh, but he was offending them by giving them, presenting what he thought was the truth. And the interesting thing is, in every instance that I checked where a, a major politician called Pearson a liar, it turned out the evidence now shows that Pearson got the story pretty accurate. Sometimes he made some mistakes about it, but for the, he got the gist of the story correct. It was the person who was accusing him who was actually lying. It was the presidential press secretary who was saying, oh, no, that didn't happen. And he knew, in fact, it did happen. And the president saying, oh, well, that's not abs absolutely not true about my administration, when, in fact, it was absolutely true about his administration. So I came away with this much more confident in Drew Pearson and his abilities as a reporter. And also the fact that all of every single column that he ever wrote is available online today at American University's digital archives. I could look up every column, the original uh, typescripts of them. And as an historian, I can go back and cite some of that information. And I, I can do it with a lot more confidence now that I've studied his life than, than before. Donald Ritchie's newest book is called The Columnist. It is about the life of Drew Pearson, and it's chock full of 20th century history. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.